Well, it is always good to be back at LCM. I don't know how it is that Bosch keeps getting more and more handsome. Well, good evening. I want to start by telling you that I have never been more proud of a community than I am this one. These are genuinely trying times, and your faith has risen higher than the floodwaters that we're all facing. Tonight, we're going to dive deeply into the circumstances that produced biblical heroes like Ezra. The loving father is a master alchemist. He knows how to take circumstances and deep convictions and mix them uniquely to produce a faith that is more precious than gold. We're going to delve deeply into the character of Ezra and the historical settings that forged his character. We're going to do this for two reasons. The first is that it's highly informative for practical application in the life of any believer. The second is that we're seeing the same fiery mixture in our time that we know will produce Ezra-like men and women in this room. So let's get straight into our standard review. That way you'll be able to place the events of our chapter in their own proper historical setting. You will remember this slide. (laughs) And you also probably remember that there were three sieges, three sieges on Jerusalem from our Jeremiah studies. As you engage with this slide, notice the three rectangular boxes titled Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They represent three waves of returning Jewish people to the land of promise that are detailed in the work that we are covering tonight. Now draw your attention to the left side of the screen where there are two arrows. The 70 years of prophesied desolation began in the third siege and continued for 23 years after the Persians rose to power. The temple was destroyed in 586 B.C., And it was rebuilt and completed in 516 B.C., 70 years after, under the administration of Zerubbabel. The slide says 515, but that is immaterial. It was 516. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah were at work during this period. Haggai focused his efforts on regaining the initial enthusiasm to complete the work that had already begun on the temple, but had stalled. Zechariah focused on the assurance that the work would be completed, even though it had stalled. The Lord used these prophets to ensure that the work on the temple was completed exactly 70 years after it had been destroyed. Just as Jeremiah and Chronicles indicated. Next, you may notice that there is a red circle. Yeah! With Esther right there in the middle of it. The temple was completed in 516 B.C., And the events of Esther took place in between the work of Zerubbabel and the arrival of Ezra in Jerusalem. That means that during our study on Esther, the temple had already been built. The book of Ezra and Nehemiah begins with the Persian decree in 539 or 8 BC. And then moves through a 23 year period in which the temple was rebuilt. It would be easy to miss that in our chapter tonight, Ezra is arriving in Jerusalem almost 80 years after the decree went out. 
And almost 60 years after the temple was completed. You also will notice that our blue box has moved. Yes! This is in context of our chapter tonight, of course. It is now in the center of our screen around Ezra and this second wave. Ezra showed up personally in Jerusalem in the 450s BC and worked to address the soul of the nation. The altar in the temple, which could be thought of as the heart of the nation, well, they were already in place. One of the things that you will notice in the ministry of Ezra is that the presence of a renewed heart, the presence of a temple and an altar, these things do not mean that you don't have significant reform that must continually occur within your soul. Somebody say amen to that. Much like the Torah that addressed your heart, Zerubbabel took care to establish God's temple and altar in the heart of Israel. But Ezra, like the Nevi'im, addressed the soul of the nation and warned them about idolatry that was still present within their renewed nation. The character displayed in the life of Ezra is, without a doubt, one of those high marks that calls all real believers upward. When we go through the chapter, you will feel the Spirit calling you to higher ground that is displayed in higher integrity, higher levels of faith, and higher levels of divine obedience. Amen. Come on. So next, you should notice the rectangular box on the right, right of the screen titled Nehemiah. The focus of Nehemiah's ministry was establishing the security and strength of the nation based on the faithfulness to Adonai in the given historical setting. This is easily related to the purpose of the Ketuvim in general. So Zerubbabel and Joshua established the temple and altar, which are the heart of Israel. Say heart of Israel. Heart of, heart of Israel. Ezra addressed Torah observance within the soul of the nation by confronting practices that don't reflect the spirit of the word. And finally, Nehemiah built the wall and city while encouraging faithfulness to the word in the historical setting that the people were living in. Come on. The three waves of return to Israel were also a threefold endorsement of the Tanakh in its threefold function. That's pretty amazing. This should remind you of Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This was always more of a prophecy than a requirement in the Word of God. The Lord is going to make sure His nation loves Him with all of their heart, with all of their soul, and with all of their strength or might. He will do the same with you as you pursue Him. Now, after noting that there were three distinct categories of desolation in the book of Jeremiah, first being the nation's servitude, then the nation's desolation, and then the nation's temple being destroyed. Many have understood the prophecy of 70 years to mean that each of these things started at different times, but all lasted exactly 70 years. Saints, this is a compelling thought and is probably true. We have already shown you that exactly three sieges occurred and three waves of return also occurred. Additionally, we've shown you that the destruction of the temple and its rebuilding were exactly 70 years apart. Amen. Y'all learning something? Yeah. Well, let's go to our next slide. 
Again, we have our infamous blue box. Ezra goes to Jerusalem in 458. That's during the reign of Artaxerxes. The bullet points that are on the right-hand side of the screen are something that you should commit to memory. I've had them committed to memory for about 28 years. The third siege of Jerusalem that destroyed the temple, it occurred in 586 B.C. That's an important date to remember. The Persian conquest of Babylon occurred in 539. Do you remember that's Daniel 5 and the whole banquet that left, uh, left a, a Babylonian king in need of new pants? <laughs> Zerubbabel and his companions, they returned under the edict of Cyrus, which was in 539, and they probably started it in 538. The temple was completed in 516. So when you take 586 and you subtract 516 from it, that gives you the 70 years that the temple lied in destruction. Now, Zerubbabel, Haggai, and Zechariah were all working in the 23-year period between the Edict of Cyrus and the completion of the temple. They showed up in about 520. They got the work going so that in only four years' time, it was done in 516. Ezra. Ezra arrives in the 450s. You see that we're saying we believe it was 458. There's some scholastic debate. Give it a year or two. His job is to reform and to teach the people. The institution of the temple did not guarantee that the people's heart was a fit temple. So more than one ministry was required. Nehemiah, of course, arrives in Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and the cities and fulfill a prophecy in Daniel. And we'll get to that when we get to Nehemiah. Now, now that we've done that, you notice on the left-hand side of the screen that in 538 B.C., Zerubbabel and his companions returned to Israel and that his work as somebody born in Babylon, seed of Babylon, was to reestablish the temple. Something he had never seen in his lifetime, something that he only saw in the word of God and felt a burning title deed in his heart to accomplish. They began the work on the temple in 538, but you already know, Something happened, and it came to a stop for 17 or 18 years. Praise God for the prophet. Somebody say, praise God. Praise God. Haggai and Zechariah show up with a dual message. You remember, Haggai says, hey, this is not the time for you to be building your own house. That stirred them. He was kind of the hammer. Zechariah is more the polishing cloth. He says, what you've started, God will help you complete. It just won't be by your might or your power. We've all loved that verse, and it's an important verse in the Bible. You can see on the screen the temple was completed in 516, and that's an important date because you can clearly see the date the temple was destroyed and the date that it was completed, and you can correlate that to a 70-year period that both Jeremiah and Chronicles said would happen. Now, as you slide down through the scale on the left-hand side of the screen, you're moving through decades until you come to our blue box. That's the context of the chapter tonight. Chapter 7 is taking place in the 450s, and it outlines a very special man that has to reform a nation that has a temple that's fit, but a people that are not fit for the temple. And you already know that all 12 tribes are present. Lastly, on that side of the screen, you see Nehemiah arriving in the 440s. There are some re resounding messages in these waves of return. 
Something that starts inside of a man in the altar of his heart has to move to his mind, will, and emotions in his daily thoughts. It has to move to practical application in his daily life, what he carries out. God reforms nations and men exactly the same way. And you can't start from the outside and work your way in. It has to start at the altar of your heart, and it has to move to your mind, will, and emotions, and it has to move to your actions, or else... You're either one-third, two-thirds, or three-thirds corrupted. <laughs> when you start to appreciate these dates, are you guys starting to appreciate the yeah. dates given in these slides? Yeah. When you start to appreciate the dates, you appreciate their significance and their overall span, then you realize that the book of Ezra and Nehemiah covers a period of about 100 years and is solely dedicated to the establishment of the heart, the soul, and the strength of Israel. Yeah. The Lord is demonstrating his help through Ezra and his comfort through Nehemiah, just as the definitions of their names suggest. Now, the point of the book is to illustrate Adonai's faithfulness to his promises given to his people. This is especially pertinent since we have already seen Adonai's commitment to their discipline. Have we not? Yeah, we have. Now, this next slide is going to be an overview of the contraction and expansion periods that God's people experienced in order to birth Ezra in tonight's chapter. A small note as he gets into that, you, you've never seen this slide. You think you have, but you haven't. And you're going to need to know these facts as well. So if you don't have them in your notes, you're going to want to take a picture with your phone because it will help you understand what you're about to learn. So our first pair of contraction and expansion, look at this first point here. 47 years of a destroyed temple and Babylonian oppression without relief or plans to build. That was 586 to 539 B.C. This was a time of contraction. But then 539 B.C., Cyrus issued a decree that was an encouraging time of expansion. Look at the next one with us. Opposition during the reign of Cambyses. And earlier years of Darius I caused the work to come to a stop for 17 or 18 years. This was a time of contraction. But in 520 BC, Darius I issued a decree that was an encouraging time of expansion as they continued the building of the temple once again and were able to <coughs> complete it. Next, complaints. Complaints during the beginning of the reign of Xerxes caused another time of contraction. Later in the reign of Xerxes, in the time of Esther, the Jewish people were shown extraordinary favor in a time of expansion. Look at this last pair. Complaints in the early days of Artaxerxes again caused a time of contraction. But later in the reign of Artaxerxes, in 458 B.C., the heart of the king is turned by God. And we see a time of extraordinary favor and expansion that birthed men like Ezra and later Nehemiah. Yeah. Let's keep talking about birthing great men. Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. We have a visual aid to help you out. Okay, so this next slide is what you would see if you were graphing a fetal heart rate monitor. We've added some labels to help you see. The sun's heart rate on the top and the uterine contractions on the bottom. You'll see that you both have mild and severe responses as far as the sun's heart rate. 
That's why it's called deceleration. When you have a uterine contraction, it causes the heart rate to decrease to severe levels. This is the point. You cannot have the child without contractions. Yeah. It's going to have to go through mild and severe seasons of contraction in order for the birth to happen. We can't avoid hardship. In light of that, we want to talk about John 16, picking up in verse 19. It says, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I mean when I said, In a little while you will see me no, you will see me no more? I'm talking about a contraction. And then after a little while, you will see me? It's referring to expansion. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Contraction. Contraction. You will grieve. But your grief will turn to joy. Expansion. Expansion. A woman giving birth to a child has pain. Contraction. Because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets about the anguish because her joy, of her joy that a child is born into the world. Expansion. So with you, now is your time of grief. Contraction. But I will see you again and you will rejoice. Expansion. Attempting to work in unity with a team. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You can expect contraction and expansion. Amen. Amen. That is how unity is birthed. If you've not all offended each other, hurt each other's feelings, and needed to forgive each other, you'll never come to a place of biblical unity. Amen. Times of contraction and expansion teach you to rely on God's name. They teach you to forgive one another. 
They also teach you during moments of your excellence that your time of contraction is coming. I want to talk to you about the covenant name of God. God is very central to the account of Ezra and Nehemiah. The first reference to God in the book of Ezra is the personal name of God that was given to the Israelites before, exi before the exodus. The name occurs 37 times in Ezra and 17 times in Nehemiah. That's quite shocking when compared with a book like Esther. It's referred to as the Tetratomagron or by the short form Tetragram. This means that the name is made up of four letters in its original form, which could be said as Yahweh or Jehovah or Yehovah. For any believer to successfully negotiate the times of contraction and expansion, it is necessary that they fully, totally, and with all of their heart, trust in the character, body of work, and reputation of the God of Israel. Now, this psalm has always meant a lot to me because it was my daddy's favorite. And I want to admit, when it's set to music in the English language, it's a little cheesy. But the message is completely sound, and you need to grab hold of it. This is Psalm 20, beginning in verse 1. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. Come on. Yep. When can you expect the Lord to answer you? May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May not, not his hand, his name. May what you know about his character, authority, and body of work protect you in your distress. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. Verse 4 picks up. May he give you the desires of your heart and make all your plans succeed. We will shout for joy when you are victorious and will lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He answers him from his holy heaven with the saving power of his right hand. Listen to this next verse in light of what we read about the covenant name in the book of Ezra. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of our Lord, our God. Come on, somebody. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Oh, Lord, save the king. Answer us when we call. Church, the God of Israel is a faithful God who does no wrong at any time, period. He is faithful in all that he does, whether it's a time of contraction or expansion. If we go through times of contraction, it is because he is birthing greater levels of faith and character in us. And when we arrive in times of expansion, it is because he is allowing us to display that character for the benefit of others to see the Amen. Fruit of it. Come on. We've been showing you this next slide since Ezra 4 as an example of the kind of cease and desist orders that were issued by Persian kings. Tonight, however, is a little different in that Artaxerxes is the king that the slide is quoting. Artaxerxes is the one who sends Ezra in an act that reverses his own 
cease and desist order from previous years. So read this with us. In his reply, the king actually strengthened the position of the Israelites by leaving open the possibility that their work might resume later by his permission. This, of course, did happen later on under the leadership of Nehemiah. In this story, the king did search the archives and found that Jerusalem had been powerful at one time. What an encouragement this must have been to Ezra's original readers to recall the years of David and Solomon and to know that even a pagan king acknowledged the sovereignty of their empire centered at Jerusalem. The king commanded that the building project stop until I so order. Pay attention to this next part. This was the same king who later sent Ezra in 458 B.C., and still later, in 444 B.C., changed this edict and allowed Nehemiah to return and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 2. So as we come to a close in our review, we want to tell you that we are proud of this body. Amen. You know, most times of contractions are forced upon a believing community. Yeah. That's true. This happens all the time. Of course, those ultimately end up advancing the same believing community. However, in this body, we willingly put ourselves in contraction, so to speak. We choose the contractions. In our times of prosperity, we give until it hurts, church. We put ourselves at a disadvantage on purpose. This only magnifies the great name and character of our God as he brings us into times of expansion. We are certain, we are certain, church, that Ezra's will arise from our number because of this prophecy. Amen. Amen. Perhaps it's worth mentioning that the early church followed this same pattern. Do you remember Acts 4, 33-37? It says, With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much grace was upon them all. Yeah. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned, and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. LCM, you are operating in the same attitude, the same spirit and method that caused Barnabas to both raise up Paul and participate in the most extraordinary times of expansion in the history of the church. Amen. Nobody had to confiscate our property. We gave it up as a free will offering for the advancement of the gospel. We can tell you confidently that Ezra's are going to be birthed from the events of the last few weeks and decades. Amen. So now we want to pray, and I would like to see Caleb Brown stand up. Yeah!
So you know what time it is. We uh, fought through abortion rallies in St. Louis and tornadoes in Illinois and Missouri and Arkansas so that we could have one sexy grandma on the front row. Read to us Ezra chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sarariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zerariah, the son of Uzai, the son of Buki, the son of Abushua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up from Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and its laws in Israel. This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra, the priest and teacher, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law of God of heaven. Greetings. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who wish to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisors, to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard of the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and the advisors have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as the freewill offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs, together with the grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. You and your brother Jews may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God, and anything else needed for the temple of your God that you may have occasion to supply, you may provide from the royal treasury. Now I, King Artaxerxes, order all the treasurers of trans-Euphrates to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law of the God of heaven, may ask you, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. 
why should there be wrath against the realm of the king of and of his sons? You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tributes, or duty on any of the priests, Levites, yeah. singers, gatekeepers, and other workers at the house of God. And you, Ezra, in accordance with the wisdom of your God, which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer, administer justice to all the people of Trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God. And you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. Wow, wow. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, wow. and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials, because the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me. I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Well, per the usual, we have more to share with you than really should be able to be accomplished in an hour and 26 minutes. We'll do it. But we trust that the God of Israel will help us share his word and that everyone's souls in this room will be stirred along with your knowledge of the word growing. Yeah. Brother Linton, if you will go ahead and jump right into verse 1 through 5 and hit that beautiful genealogy one more time. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sarahiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Uki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, yeah. the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Oh, oh. Yeah. So saints, you know well at this point that genealogies in the Bible are never insignificant. You should do well to remember that this book is the story of a singular family. Now we could easily fill hours, hours of our time together with detailed analysis regarding every name in this list. However, given the time frame that we do have, we thought it would be best to focus on three of Ezra's ancestors. Next, I have a highly detailed artistic slide for you. Are you yep. ready? As you can see, noted on the right-hand side of the screen, we have three bullets for you. It is 14 generations earlier from Ezra that Phinehas was alive. Then five generations earlier was a man named Zadok. And then the great-grandfather of Ezra was Hilkiah. We're going to look at these three men just to give an idea of what the total list encompasses. The first thing to take note of is that Ezra was a direct descendant of Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron. This means that he is a part of the perpetual priesthood that was promised to the line of Phinehas because of the way he distinguished himself in Numbers 25. The descendants of Aaron became numerous during a time of blessing and expansion. But during a difficult time of testing and contraction, Phinehas demonstrated that he cared more about the reputation of God than familial relations. Hallelujah. Would you like to look at that? Oh, yeah. yes. This is Numbers 25. And uh, we'll begin in verse 6. 
Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw this, he left the assembly and took a spear in his hand. He grabbed that spear. He gave it the old spear twist. You got to grab that spear. And followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through both of them. Through the Israelite and into the woman's body. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague numbered 24,000. The Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites. He was as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Therefore tell him, I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of lasting priesthood, because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. When the average believer envisions a priest, they do it with a Bible in the hand of the priest or a scroll. This is certainly true, but Phineas had a spear in his hand. This is because priests are mediators that represent two parts of a covenant. One is the kindness or graciousness of our God, and the other is the severity of our God. Remember, the Levitical priesthood was born under the same circumstances, and it is always necessary that we represent both parts of the covenant. Come on. Yeah. All right, so we're going to take a look a little bit deeper at the family that Phinehas comes from, because Ezra comes from the same family. That's the family of Levi. So we're going to look at Exodus 32, 25 through 29. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them Get out of control. Goyim gone wild. (laughs) (laughs) Got to give it the old spear twist. (laughs) I'd prefer to think of like when fathers come home from work and see their kids, but. (laughs) Aaron. Selling series of the time. It was on TV late at night, I promise. (laughs) The old spear twist. All right, Aaron had let them get out of control. Just remember that. We're going to move to the next script. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron had let them get out of control and so became a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. So the genealogy that chapter 7 begins with, would have called to mind the origins of the Levitical priesthood in general. The mention of Phinehas would have served to emphasize the need to side with Adonai in this way and his standards above 
familial relationship. That's how the Levites became a priestly tribe. They sided with Adonai and his standards even above their own sons and their own brothers. This makes us want to do this in an even more profound way. Now remember, Moses spoke a blessing over the entire Levitical community saying these statements in Deuteronomy 33, 8-10. About Levi, he said, Your Thummim and Urim belong to the man you favored. You tested him at Massa. You contended with him at the waters of Meribah. He said of his father and mother, I have no regard for them. He did not recognize his brothers or acknowledge his own children. But he watched over your word and guarded your covenant. Yes. He teaches your precepts to Jacob and your law to Israel. He offers incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Compared to the word of God, compared to the truth that is found in the word, the Levites were blessed because nothing, everything else paled in comparison to guarding the covenant and the word that they were entrusted with. No familial relations, nothing, no, no break in shalom compared at all to the standard of the word of God and their own perpetuation of that standard. This blessing was for all Levites, but the one stated over Phinehas was even more profound. Yeah. Let's do one more on Phinehas. It's number 2513. It says, He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood. Man, I love how that sounds. Because he was zealous for the honor of his God, and he made atonement for the Israelites. It would seem that the best way to benefit your family and relatives is to become uncompromisingly in upholding the very standards of God. Nothing beneficial is ever gained by compromising these standards. But upholding them may secure a perpetual priesthood in your family. This is an important understanding for our time and during the historical setting of Ezra. But let's move on to our next highlighted descendant, and that is Zadok. We're going to Ezekiel 44, verse 15 through 16. But the priests who are Levites and descendants of Zadok, and who faithfully carried out the duties of my sanctuary, then the Israelites went astray from me, are to come near to minister before me. They are to stand before me to offer sacrifices of fat and blood, declares the sovereign Lord. They alone are to enter my sanctuary. They alone are to come near my table to minister before me and perform my service. Thanks many of you may not have realized that the line of Aaron went through expansions and contractions that birthed extraordinary men. During the times of contraction, these men were always distinguished by uniquely upholding the standards of God. After Phineas' time, about nine generations later, Zadok distinguished himself by remaining faithful to the standards of God when other priests in the line began to compromise. The result of this distinguishing factor was that the Lord only accepted the descendants of Zadok as capable of ministering to the Lord himself. The others were still allowed to minister to the people, but only Zadok's descendants maintained the privilege of ministering to the Lord. It is noteworthy that Ezra 
descended from both Phinehas and specifically through the line of Zadok. So let's take another look at the third highlighted name, Hilkiah. Are y'all catching the broadening and then the narrowing? God makes this appeal to huge groups of people, but he always narrows it down to those that are the most devoted. And it is almost always those that are devoted within their own familial line. If you can't hold the line with your own family, you will not do it with the rest of the world. Let's talk Hilkiah. 2 Chronicles 34, verse 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And he gave it to Shaphan. And you may remember that when we taught 2 Chronicles, it was our opinion that Hilkiah didn't just find a copy of Deuteronomy. We think all of the evidence points to him finding the book of Deuteronomy. The one that had been given through Moses is then written by his hand. Tonight, that fact will become highly significant as we move forward. In the opening genealogy of this chapter, Ezra is presented as a priest that descends from Phineas, who is the progenitor of a perpetual priesthood. Then from Zadok, who remains faithful when all others forsake the way. Then, as a priest descended from Hilkiah, the one that found the original copy of Deuteronomy that was handwritten by Moses. This builds a pretty powerful introduction to the pedigree and expected character of Ezra. The beautiful thing is, Ezra lives up to the pedigree and the reputation in every way. All right, let's pick up at verse 6. This Ezra. This Ezra. Came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord the God of Israel had given. The king had granted him everything he asked for, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. <clears throat> now that we've read the first six verses, it seems as if it would be a mistake not to point out that in Hebrew, this should be envisioned as if a ring announcer was, was reading it. Think Bruce Buffer. <laughs> you know, UFC fight night. The Hebrew literally begins verse 6 with the words, He is Ezra, rather than this is Ezra. You know, you should envision yourself as saying it like this. He is Ezra! We're really not joking. We want to show you a slide to give you some uh, linguistic research on this. He is Ezra. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. Verses 1 through 6 introduce the character Ezra. They are one sentence in Hebrew with no verb until verse 6. Because the subject Ezra in verse 1 is so far from the verb went up here, the name Ezra is repeated again in verse 6. The translator needs to pay particular attention here to the introduction and description of this new and major character. Come on. It's like introducing the champion in the UFC arena saying, 
this guy, he came from this place and this place and this place and he did this and he did this and he did this. He is Ezra. Now the verb went up, which is repeated three times in this section in verses 6, 7, and 9, and again in verse 28 at the end of the chapter. It echoes the edict of Cyrus in Ezra 1.3. It emphasizes the fulfillment of that aspect of his decree going up. The repetition of the same verb here and the mention of Babylonia clearly links the second part of the book of Ezra to the first part of Ezra Nehemiah. For Babylonia, see Ezra 1.11. So far in this section, the writer, which is Ezra himself, has identified the new character Ezra in the history that he is recounting. He has shown Ezra's legitimacy as a teacher of the law through the presentation of his lineage, and he has briefly stated what Ezra did. Now, a fuller description of the historical person of Ezra is given. Look, there are so many noteworthy points that you will want to chase down in your personal studies that this slide draws to your attention. But we have to at least key in on the concept of Aliyah, or going up, or ascension to Jerusalem. Take a look at this next slide. I'm going to highlight four verses from the book of Ezra that contain Aliyah. The first is Ezra 1.3. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up, Aliyah, to Jerusalem and Judah, and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Ezra 7, 6 in our chapter tonight. This Ezra came up from Babylon. Aliyah. Aliyah. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. The very next verse. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up. Aliyah. Aliyah. To Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And then also in verse 28 of chapter 7. And who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up Aliyah. with me. The language that Ezra 7 displays is clearly intended to show this Ezra. He is Ezra, as the latest means of fulfilling Adonai's will expressed in the decree of Cyrus. The book opens with the decree of Cyrus and the Hebrew expression of Aliyah, and then this chapter mentions it no less than three times. This repeating pattern of threes has always grasped our attention in our hearts. We must ascend to Jerusalem. Come on. Yeah. In our souls, we must ascend to to Jerusalem. In our physical being, we will ascend to Jerusalem. This Ezra had a heart founded on the law like Phinehas, a soul that would not depart from the truth like Zadok, and in his physical being possessed a tenacity for discovery in the book of the law, just like Hilkiah before him. He is Ezra! Of our own captivity. 
receive any of her plagues. We want to tell you that Ezra's are being birthed in the midst, in our midst. And this Ezra that we're studying about, he's a man worth imitating. But let's move on to verse 7 for now. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Now I imagine that at this point the picture is becoming clear. And the things that we have asserted are proving themselves in the text to you. All 12 tribes are present, which is why the text refers to Israelites and or including the following men. Notice that priests, Levites, and temple servants are all making aliyah together along with all Israel. Now the temple servants in the passage are the Gibeonites of Joshua Chapter 9, verses 21 through 27. Take your time and read that on your own. They were dedicated temple servants that were grafted into the economy of Israel. They had gone through expansions and contractions, like the time period of Saul, or going into captivity with all Israel and returning with the rest of Israel. They had gone through these expansions and contractions, but they were a clan within the Gibeonites named Nethanim, that had survived and prospered in these events. Now the Alex X confirms this, and so does Rashi's commentary on this passage. The point is that every segment of society within the total economy of Israel had a remnant preserved that never perished, and the whole society is reconstituted in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now if you like to study the temple servants, a little further, or the Hebrew text of Nethanim, you can read further again in the Alex X, in Rashi's commentary, or perhaps read a fantastic section in New Unger's Bible Dictionary. Let's keep moving to verse 8, brother. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. For the gracious hand of his God was on him. Amen. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord, and teaching his decrees and laws in Israel. Ezra is perhaps one of the most beneficial characters in the Holy Writ for us to imitate. As we look at these verses, remember that back in verse 6, Ezra was called well-versed in the law of Moses? That phrase in Hebrew is the same as Psalm 45 in verse 1. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. Ezra was well-versed or skillful in the law of Moses the way that a writer is skillful in poetry. Ezra knew the heart and the spirit of the Torah, and he was able to implement it in meaningful and lasting ways. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine contains the same phrase. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will serve before kings. He will not serve before obscure men. See, Ezra was well-versed or skilled in his work with the Torah in the same way that distinguishes servants before a king. The reason that we're pointing this out now is that for the second time, this chapter has also declared that the gracious hand of his God was upon Ezra. 
That phrase occurred in verse 6, and then it occurred again in verse 9. So let's ask you, believers, how does that happen? How does a mere servant obtain the gracious hand of God, the monarch of the universe, on his life personally? Well, we're really glad that you asked. (laughs) The answer is in verse 10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. You know, it's really important for you crazy charismatics to grasp that Ezra did not fall out of a spiritual safety deposit box that contains extraordinary gifts apart from the application of extraordinary devotion. Wow. He wasn't just made into who he was in a day. He didn't arrive already prepackaged in that way. He had to apply extraordinary devotion. Ezra was skillful and the hand of the Lord was upon him because he devoted himself to study. Come on. In fact, Ezra excelled in three specific areas. He excelled in the study of the law. You'll remember that the Hebrew says Ezra had set his heart. He was devoted, but the Hebrew says he set his heart to derash, to seek the Torah of Yahweh. Not just read it, not just memorize it, but to seek the Torah of Yahweh. This, by doing so, will make any man skillful in the law. Amen. To seek it out. The next thing that Ezra excelled in, after he excelled in the study or the seeking of the law, is he excelled in observance to the law. In other words, he did it. He did it. Ezra was not content to study alone or seek alone. His favorite thing to do was not just have Bible studies and more Bible studies. He was fully committed in obedience to the things that he learned. Remember, he had set his heart. He was fully committed in obedience to what he had learned. This, in doing so, will ensure that Adonai's hand is on any man that does this. And then lastly, after the first two were right in Ezra's life, Ezra excelled in teaching the application of the law in Israel. The things that were invested inside Ezra were in turn invested into Israel. Do you want to know how to have God's gracious hand upon you? Yes. I mean... It's not such an esoteric formula. We seek the truth contained in the word no matter what that means. Then when we find it, we carry it out no matter what that means. And then having carried it out, we teach others to do the exact same thing. That will cause the gracious hand of God to be on any man who does that. Guys, Ezra set an incredible example for the nation of Israel and for us even today. And that's why Judaism tends to think of Ezra as a kind of first rabbi. Look at this slide all the way from our first chapter together. The importance of Ezra for the creation and formation of what came to be known as rabbinic Judaism cannot be overestimated. According to the Bible, Ezra was the one who brought the Torah to the returning exiles, read and interpreted it publicly, and oversaw the people's solemn recommitment to his teachings. Thus, Ezra is like a second Moses. The rabbis imply this by stating, 
Ezra was sufficiently worthy that the Torah could have been given through him if Moses had not preceded him. Ezra is both an authoritative scribe and priest, as well as a kind of proto-rabbi who also has the authority of a prophet. His legal innovations are not seen as such, but are depicted as proper interpretation of eternally binding Mosaic law. This principle is at the heart of rabbinic interpretation, and his authenticity is never called into question within rabbinic Judaism. So within Judaism, these three aspects of Ezra's life, study, observance, and teaching, have become the ideal prototype for a rabbi. It has also served as an example for generations of Christian preachers. In our day, it is worth deeply contemplating whether any man should attempt to teach the Word of God without gaining some level of aptitude in these first two areas, study and observance. Remember that the Lord's own brother said this in James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Our word is good than men like Ezra teach. It is good that men like Ezra, who are forged through times of contraction and expansion, become teachers of God's people. Their own study of the word produces a personal adherence to the word and its principles in their daily lives. These are the men that are like Phinehas, Zadok, and Hilkiah that should be our instructors. It is as if they found the original copy of the law and are again making it accessible to us by their personal observance of that law. There will be Ezra's that arise from this group in similar fashion. Will only happen though through similar means. Saints, as we shift to the portion of the chapter that contains an official Persian decree written in Aramaic, you will learn some truly mind-blowing things. However, the most important part of our evening tonight is that you set your aim on becoming men that are just like Ezra. Amen. 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 That's a good word. Verse 11, brother. This is a copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra the priest and teacher, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and degrees of the Lord of Israel. The Lord for Israel. As we get into the specific text of the Persian document, Notice again that the king of the known world is affirming the basis upon which Ezra obtained favor. He was a priest and teacher. This specific phrase is only used of Ezra in all of the Bible. And it only occurs three times in the Bible. In Nehemiah 8.9, it says, Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe or teacher, same, same word, And the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Then for a third time in Nehemiah 12, 26, they served in the days of Jehoiakim, son of Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and in the days of Nehemiah the governor and of Ezra the priest and scribe or teacher. Others are called priest or teacher. But Ezra is described as a priest and teacher. 
There are many ways you can think about that. But he had a heart that wanted to intercede for people and also a heart that held high the standards of God. And he lived in the tension between those two truths without seeing men as expendable or without lowering the standards of God. He represented God well. We could go on and on with the excellent character of Ezra. However, we first want to illustrate how pagan contemporaries viewed Ezra. This is because you would expect believers to revere Ezra, but to have the pagan governmental officials speak of him so highly, well, that's a whole other class of compliment. Now we're going to get into the Aramaic portion of this chapter, the official text of the Persian document. Are you all ready for this? There's some mind-blowing things coming your way, so you'll want to rouse yourselves. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra, the priest, a teacher of the law of the God of heaven. Greetings. Greetings. (laughs) You know, there are many times that the dynamic translation of the NIV is a useful aid to us. (laughs) This ain't one of them. (laughs) We're going to read this passage in the NASB. Ezra 7.12, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace. See, it may be true that the phrase perfect peace is a greeting, but surely the greeting that Artaxerxes chose is of importance. Artaxerxes wished perfect peace on Ezra. Let's take a look at the word in Aramaic. So check it out. This is 1585 Aramaic gamar, a verb meaning to complete. This Aramaic word is used only once in the Old Testament and is equivalent to the Hebrew word gamar, meaning to complete. It is found only in the introductory section of Artaxerxes' decree given to Ezra in Ezra 7.12, this passage. Although the exact meaning of this word is unclear, it is best to understand this word as an introductory comment similar to Ezra 5-7, where the Hebrew word shalem, meaning peace, is used. While these two words are similar in that they're both greetings, it's noteworthy that he didn't use the normal greeting. He used one that means completeness. So it can't be a mistake that Artaxerxes chose to greet Ezra with a term that means completion. Other greetings occurred in Aramaic, but the king chose this specific greeting for Ezra at this time. It seems that the king wanted Ezra to be in shalom and complete what he was called to do. This also reminds us of a similar phrase in Hebrew found in Isaiah 26, 2-3, which I'll read. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace. Him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Come on, somebody. That's beautiful, isn't it? This greeting is the first of many indicators that point to a much deeper relationship between Artaxerxes and Ezra than most people would assume. In the NASB, Artaxerxes also called Ezra a scribe of the law of the God of heaven. Now, we don't have time to explain this now, but this is an extraordinary compliment. Yeah. Scribes in the days of Jeremiah were called liars. Their pens were used to destroy the text. However, 
Ezra is a man who rightly handles the word of God. And we want to give you a perspective on the likely position and relationship of Ezra to Artaxerxes. And we have a slide for you. So Ezra's expertise. Ezra is given a variety of attributes. Most of them centering around his ability as a scribe and teacher of the law of the God (laughs) of heaven. As a scribe, Ezra was possibly a member of the Persian bureaucracy. It was a common practice for ancient Near Eastern governments to employ persons trained not only as secretaries or clerks, but as diplomats and lawyers, like an ambassador and a judicial enforcer. These individuals were used to interpret documents from subject and allied peoples. They were also sent on investigative missions to aid the king and his advisors in making decisions. Now, examples include the 7th century Assyrian scribe Ahakar and the description of the scribal profession in the Middle Eastern kingdom, Egyptian, satire of the trades, where the profession of scribe is praised as a worthy vocation with benefits that far exceed other types of employment. Now, given our extensive studies into the Achaemenid kings, you're aware that no one could approach these monarchs. You can't just walk up into their throne room. You can't drop in and say, hey, what's up, brother? A person had to be invited into their presence. All historical evidence points to Ezra being a personal acquaintance of Artaxerxes and working in an official capacity for him. You will notice throughout the letter that Artaxerxes speaks of Ezra in glowing and in personalized terms because he knows the man. Let's go ahead and pick up in 13 and 14 and be listening for that kind of language. Now I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who wish to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisors. How many advisors was that? Advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. I I missed that last phrase. What was the last phrase? It's in your hand. (laughs) Wow. You guys remember that Ezra was descended from Hilkiah? What was it that Hilkiah found? He found the book of the law given through Moses. It's always possible that Artaxerxes is just using a figure of speech when he says, the law of your God, which is in your hand. Or he may mean it very, very literally. Artaxerxes says the exact same phrase in verse 25 as well. Unfortunately, the NIV again convolutes the phrase by translating it wisdom. However, the Aramaic phrase is the same in both cases. Our position is that Ezra held the physical copy of the Torah written by Moses in his hand and that he was personally known to Artaxerxes. You're going to see many compelling reasons tonight for our position as the evening moves forward. But let's start with another slide. Seven advisors of the king, based on the report of Esther 114, 
and the ancient historians Xenophon and Herodotus. We know that the Persian kings relied on a group of seven princes or advisors as their privy council. It would be natural that an investigative commission such as that given to Ezra would come in the name of the king and his advisors. Our contention as we move forward is that there is no way for Ezra to have entered into the king's presence without being known by the king. He had to be invited into the king's presence. That all seven advisors knew Ezra and that they utilized him as a scribe to solve difficult matters. And something in particular stood out to them. Ezra had a very special book. Something that was cherished to him. Something that his great grandfather found and he had and was kept through the captivity and it won over the hearts of the Persian council. Now you examine this letter as we move forward and see if what we're saying is plausible. If you don't agree, it's okay. You have the right to be wrong. But we want to draw your attention to it as we move forward. Let's begin in verse 15. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisors have freely given to the God of Israel. Wow. Whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Together with all the silver and gold you may obtain from the prophets of Babylon, as well as the free will offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. Look, Justin is going to help you with this. But we read this like, oh, no problem. Remember, this is in a Persian document. Now notice what he highlights to you. So notice that Artaxerxes is familiar with the kinds of offerings that Ezra would make. He doesn't suggest non-kosher animals or any animals other than what the text of the Torah indicates. This is probably because Ezra had personally instructed him with the law of God that was in his hand. Now also notice that the first grouping of people that contributed to the offerings were the king and his advisors. Try to get some money for this church out of Hunter and Joseph Biden. You'd have, to, you'd have to offer crack in return for that. This council personally supported the work of Ezra. I want you to notice that kind of thing as we move forward. They personally suggested the kind of animals that would be offered. How could they have known that? The answer is probably that they knew and they were impressed with Ezra. He impressed these pagan monarchs and advisors. Now in the second group that made offerings were the people and the priests. The king and the officials contributed before the people of Israel. We, we simply cannot imagine that happening unless Ezra had made a real impression on Artaxerxes. Y'all starting to feel us yet? Yeah. It's about to get a lot better. Yeah. As we get into verse 18, and Linton gets that for us, you're going to see the expansion of knowledge that this king had about the Torah grow even more. You and your brothers, 
Yeah. Your brother Jew. Your brother Jew. Brother Jew. Those black Hebrew Israelites. Come on, brother. No. No. Do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. So some translations actually obscure the importance of the phrase brother Jews. But here the NIV actually gets it with clarity. You and your brother Jews. The Aramaic word is ah, meaning brother. The king, listen to this, guys. This is my book. The king understood that Israel was a family formed by 12 brothers. Come on. These were not simply countrymen or men of the same nation. The king knew that they were brothers and what formed the nation of Israel was 12 brother Jews. There are many other phrases that could have been used, but Artaxerxes chose the word brothers. This would actually seem to indicate that he was familiar with the Torah stories of how the 12 brothers came to form 12 tribes that were the nation of Israel. Come on, somebody. He didn't say countrymen. He didn't say your national associates. He didn't say all them people. He referred to them specifically as brothers. And there's many, many ways you could say this in Aramaic and in Hebrew. But the word is very specific. Ach, brothers. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all charges entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God and anything else needed for the temple of your God that you may have anything else needed for the temple of your God that you may have occasion to supply you may provide from the warrior treasury. Yeah, bring the articles, whatever you need, and then some. Yeah. We want you to notice that Ezra was given access to the royal treasure to provide for items needed for the temple worship. It's hard to imagine this happening unless Artaxerxes was personally invested in what Ezra was doing. Have any of you had a governmental official go, oh, look, we'll open our treasuries for you to complete your ministry? No. And consider the times. It wasn't like Ezra just slid into his DMs and was asking for money. There had to be some kind of relationship. This is probably because they spent... Uh, considerable amount of time together. Again, there will be some. Uh, this will become clear with something that Ezra says, but we're going to get into that later in the evening. So let's pick up in 21. Now I, King Artaxerxes, ordered all the treasurers of Transphrase to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law of the God of heaven, may ask of you. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat. A hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil, and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? (laughs) You're about to hear the nail in the argument. Notice God of heaven's reference three times. Now, in a growing environment of inflation, it's very difficult to assess the actual value of what was given here, particularly that salt is without limit. But most estimates place it nearing 10 million. The general consensus among scholars that the Persian kings were simply superstitious. 
10 million. And just wanted <laughs> sacrifices to be made on their behalf to every god just to cover their bases. Come on, man. However, this kind of false assumption, we learned to view with skepticism in our Esther studies. Yeah. You guys remember that together? Yeah. yeah. We want you to consider a few things here. Artaxerxes commanded all, not some, all, all the treasures of Trans-Euphrates to help Ezra. Now, just in case you're missing it, the term Trans-Euphrates means everything south of the Euphrates. That entire region, all the way south of the Euphrates, every single treasury is to be open to Ezra. Artaxerxes continually calls Ezra's God, the God of heaven. In this specific section we just read, he did it not once, not twice, but three times. Artaxerxes commits enormous amounts of silver, wheat, wine, olive oil, and salt without limit to the project, which you've already been noted are the components of sacrifices. Now, by the way, he knew somehow that each of these items are specifically not acceptable, but commanded and required by the Torah of God. Now you need to consider that Artaxerxes says, why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Was it just mere superstition? Or does he know something that is running through his mind? Well, we're glad that you asked that question. Can we help you with it? Yes. Do you really want to know? Yes. Do you really want to know? Yes. We're going to look at Ezra 8 for a minute. And in a favorite verse, there's something that everyone has missed. And we're happy you're here with us tonight because you'll now have this little gem forever. Ezra 8.22. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from the enemies on the road because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. But his great anger is against all who forsake him. Are you catching this? Ezra told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone, including you, king, who looks to him. But his great anger is against all who forsake him, including you, king. This could have only happened if Ezra and Artaxerxes knew each other. Either Ezra is lying, or he was in a group of men who personally told the king about both aspects of a relationship with God. This could have only happened if Ezra had been invited into the court. You know from the Achaemenid studies, you didn't get invited into the court unless the king had a desire to see you. This really reminds us of Paul standing before Felix. Acts 24, 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess, a sister Jew. Lady Jew. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. They were doing really well, right? Just talking about faith, just... Having a casual little chat, me and a Jewess. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. 
Felix was afraid and said, Ah, oh, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. I want you to catch this. I've not seen it anywhere in any commentary. Artaxerxes had personal knowledge of the Torah. Artaxerxes had to know Ezra personally, and Ezra said, I told that man, the gracious hand of God is on all who look to him, and his wrath is on all who forsake him. What if Artaxerxes is not simply being superstitious and covering his bases? What if he believed the man that had the original book of law in his hands, who studied it, did what it said, and hear this, taught everyone else to do exactly the same. And what kind of lesson is there in that for those of us dealing with our own family members? We are not being a witness if we do not warn them about the judgment to come. The witness of God is twofold. Grace upon those who look to him and the judgment of God coming on even your mother, even your father, even your niece, who will not look to him. And if Ezra had the uh, chutzpah, the old chutzpah twist. If Ezra had, you got to grab the chutzpah. If Ezra had the chutzpah to do that, then consider why God's gracious hand was on Ezra. See, what you might be scared to do might be the salvation of God's people if you do it. See, this changes our view of Ezra from just kind of like a Sunday school teacher, like his whole job is to carry around the law and sit down with people and teach it, to a man who stood like Paul. While he was on trial, he put the king on trial and talked about the judgment of God. This means that Ezra rightly handled the word of God, yeah. and he taught the full message. Not the half message, not the imbalanced message, but the full message to Artaxerxes. Oh. And perhaps in light of that, we should reflect on 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, one who has the gracious hand of God on you, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles yeah. the word of truth. A man who hands out hope, but also the judgment of God if they do not turn. In our time, it has become the common perception of believers to assume that they are to present the blessings of a covenant to people, especially their families, while leaving out the wrath of God. The covenant means nothing if there is no wrath of God. You have to have the full message. It does not seem that Ezra agreed with leaving half-truths. He apparently presented the whole counsel of God's word to Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes actually responded in surprising ways. This is what happens when we commit ourselves to the full message. Are you all having a good time? Yes. Are you learning something? Yes. Let's pick up in verse 24. this. Come on. The relationship that these men had for 
Artaxerxes to put something like this for the rest of his kingdom to read and to have to obey. Guys, 2,500 plus years later, we are still enjoying the benefits of the relationship yeah. that Ezra had with King Artaxerxes. Now, can you imagine for a moment being a governmental official in the Persian Empire? And you reading this and finding out, whoa, the Jewish priests are exempt from taxation. All the rest of us gotta pay taxes, man. Why are they special? <laughs> if you were them, though, what kind of questions would that raise in your mind concerning King Artaxerxes' beliefs and his sympathies? Would you know then that maybe there was something going, maybe there was a relationship that he had that was beneath the surface of the text? So, while you're engaging with that, and we teach you to do that in ministry training, Okay, I, I don't want to run anybody down, especially not those that might be standing in the presence of God. Then again, they may not be, so we'll let, we'll let the Lord work that out. We've had some pastors that were friends of many U.S. presidents. Well, praise God for that. I'm glad they were friends. Did they discourse on the judgment of God? Or did they only speak about the blessings of God? See, this had a profound effect on the world and was likely just the fruit of an honest, personal communication. Never underestimate why it is that your knees are shaking, why it is that you do not want to say something, but, but you have this feeling that you need to, and you're like, but that's my brother. But that, if you can't say it to your own brother, then who can? You should never underestimate why Satan is trying to stop you from honestly, effectively communicating the kindness of God and the sternness of God to every person you meet, but especially to your family. Say, oh, but they say they're saved. Yes, everybody says they're saved. Speak what you know to be the truth and do it in love without having to tell them that you're doing it in love. The truth is love. Verse 25. Yeah, that's the same Aramaic phrase as you heard earlier. The word of God was in his hand. The book was in his hand. Well, now you're hearing that Artaxerxes is saying the wisdom is in your hand, as in literally. Appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws. They didn't get it. They didn't hear it. If they did, they would have gasped. Y'all have to help them out.
How remarkable is it that Artaxerxes is commissioning Ezra to teach non-Jews about the law of his God? Come on. Uh, Ezra is also given the authority to appoint magistrates and judges. He has so much authority that's been given to him by this Persian king. We had mentioned that it was a little bit like the Great Commission. And I want to read that to you right now. This is Matthew 28, picking up in 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In light of what we are studying tonight, we could preach on this for another hour. We need to keep moving forward, but we want you to catch that Artaxerxes sent this out to all nations. To all of Trans-Euphrates, because he wanted them to know about the message that Ezra had. As Peyton said, we need to keep moving, because some of the best things that we have to share with you are after verse 28. Oh yeah, for sure. At this point in time, I have a small regret. It's that we didn't show you a map because we're not necessarily the most biblically literate people. That's true. <laughs> South of the Trans-Euphrates continues all the way through the land grant that Moses stated that Israel would have. Persia's empire extends all the way into Egypt. Ezra is being sent to Jerusalem and is being given permission to carry the word of God from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the biblical world. Now, if we had time, I would read you Mark 16, but we don't. In your own time, you can see that they were told to preach the good news to the ends of the earth. All right, since we're not going to read Mark 16, (laughs) let me me take one more stab at this. We're trying tonight, okay? We're limping, but we're trying. Having established the heart of, of the nation of Israel through the altar, And Ezra now reforming the soul of the nation. Do you know what he's receiving permission to do? Establishing the heart of the biblical world. Jerusalem's the center of the earth, friends. And Persia covers the whole biblical world. So within the kingdom of Persia is Jerusalem, which is the center. And he's being given permission to share the law of his God with everybody in the heart of the Persian Empire. See, what is in your heart that you honestly stand for, speaking both the gracious hand of God and the wrath and judgment of God, if that is your sincere conviction, it will find its way into the heart of the peoples around you. Verse 26. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death Banishment, wow. confiscation of property, wow. or imprisonment. That's worse than the January 6th commission. <laughs> it's amazing to us that the king of Persia mentions the law of God as first and foremost, and then goes on to also mention the law of the king as entirely secondary wow. in his commission. That's incredible. Ezra seems to be expected to enforce the law of God and the king's laws on all the people, Jew and Gentile alike, through the entire region. Now consider the range of authority granted to Ezra. Death, 
banishment, confiscation of property, and imprisonment. Hey, this is unheard of in Persian government to entrust to a non-Persian these kind of penalties. Now, Ezra 9 is going to be very interesting in our coming weeks because you're going to see Ezra implementing banishment that affects both Jews and Gentiles as he was given the authority to do so here by Artaxerxes. Now, you need to notice we pick up in verse 27. After we've gone through the king's words, it's going to pick back up in Hebrew. It's no longer in Aramaic, and you're going to hear Ezra's testimony about these events. Let's get verse 27. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, for has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. I'm just going to throw a lot at you right here because we really do want to get to something and we're running out of time. Let me just say this reminds us of a proverb. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The king's heart was not moved by half of the story. He was not told that he was a champion and sent on his way. The difficult parts were not avoided. Artaxerxes was told about the gracious hand of God and the wrath of God. Then Adonai, not anybody else, Adonai, put it into the king's heart to bring about this honor. I want to tell you, saints, if you will faithfully represent God, God will put things in people's hearts that you will never be able to by being a wuss. It just will not happen. But if you show some courage of conviction, God will do what you can't do with your family. By the way, the word honor here is payar, to glorify. He put it in the king's heart to glorify this temple. Let's do verse 28. And who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Notice that the Bible records a threefold witness from the king, the advisors, and the powerful officials, which in Hebrew is the Giborim. Yeah. It seems that Ezra has made quite an impact on them, even the Giborim. Now, some translators say, who has extended his good favor, steadfast love, loving kindness. This is the Hebrew word chesed. Ezra records Adonai's chesed expressed through the king, his advisors, and the king's giborim, the powerful officials. Man, what a picture of the sovereignty of God and Ezra's impact on Persian society. That's incredible, isn't it? What we're seeing is that like Ezra 6, leading men from all 12 tribes of Israel are present, plus the priests, plus the Levites, and the servants were present. We're seeing that happen in the kingdom, and this is telling us that the entire body of the kingdom is being affected by what Ezra is doing. So we finished the chapter. Would you all like to close? No. It's up to you. Do you want to close? Do you want to go home? All right. Guys, at this point, we are about to share with you something that Jewish and ancient Christian commentators all believe was written by Ezra. We want you to know 
that the fact that they are in unison on the point was only interesting to us. The compelling factor for us is the overlap in the content we are about to share with you. We have 10 examples of the content of Ezra overlapping with a specific psalm in the Bible. That psalm is Psalm 119, which was written by Ezra himself. Guys, we have 10 of these to show you how Ezra was compelled to study the Word of God. How Ezra was compelled to implement the Word of God. How Ezra was compelled to teach the Word of God. And how that way of life inspired him to write what he wrote in Ezra and in Psalm 119. You ready to hear the first one? Before we get into the first one, I want to tell you something. Psalm 119 is referred to as Ezra's manual of devotion. Let me tell you, if you want to increase your hunger for the Word of God, if you want to increase your desire for the Word of God, to increase your ability to grasp what the Word of God says, I encourage you tonight, you dive into Psalm 119, because this is what Ezra, the priest and scribe, the priest and teacher of God, wrote so that we would benefit in his own desires and thoughts about the word of truth. We're going to start in Psalm 119, verses 46 and 47. And as we do, picture Ezra writing this passage. I will speak of your statutes before kings. Did he do that, church? Yes. Yes, he did. He spoke of the statutes of God before kings, and he's writing about it right here. And will not be put to shame. He took a stand on the word of God, and he wasn't put to shame. The king actually stood up for him yes. and wrote a letter to the known world in his favor. Come on. Yeah. Verse 47, this happened. For I delight in your commands because I love them. Oh, yeah. Guys, this correlates to Ezra 7, 27. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. I think Peyton has another one for us. This is Psalm 119, verse 52. I remember your ancient laws, O Lord, and I find comfort in them. Ezra can remember the law of his God that he calls ancient, because these laws were lost. But now they have been found, and that by Ezra's great-grandfather. Therefore he found comfort in his precious treasure that he now possessed. Come on, man. That had a little meaning to you when he says your ancient laws, especially if he's carrying the ancient copies. Consider Psalm 119, verse 53. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Meaning that they had the law but forsook it, and he was filled with indignation. Ezra 9.3 says this. When I heard this, that men who have the law and were forsaking it, 
I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled my hair from my head and my beard, and sat down appalled. Sounds like indignation to me. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening (laughs) sacrifice. He's penning the psalm out of the moments in his own life. Look, I I never look ahead to see where scriptures are going to fall as we're teaching. We just, as they come, we do them. I looked ahead tonight. I'm so excited this one fell to me. Psalm 119, verse 72. The law from your mouth is more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. This may be the first time in my entire ministry career where there is presently enough money to finish what I'm supposed to do this month. And I'm excited about that. But I have never been excited about money like I am the words of God. Now, this is written out of Ezra's own experience. He's not just making this up. It has been his experience that he's writing about in the psalm. Listen to Ezra 8.24. Then I set apart 12 of the leading priests, together with Sherebiah, Hashbiah, and 10 of their brothers. Total of 12. And I weighed out to them the offering of silver and gold and the article that the king, his advisors, his officials, and all Israel present there had donated for the house of God. I weighed them out. 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents, 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold valued at 1,000 derricks, and two fine articles of polished bronze as precious as gold. He faithfully administered the offerings of the people. And I'm excited about that. That's what all ministers should do. But that's not what he valued. He did not value the offerings of the people. He valued obedience to the word of God that was more precious to him than gold or silver. What a special time we live in. And Ezra's are going to rise from our midst as the result of the sacrifice in this room. Isn't this incredible? You will not get these connections from any commentary that you read. Are you ready for a few more? Listen to Psalm 119, verse 79. May those who fear you... He's talking, to, he's talking about the Lord. May those who fear you, Lord, turn to me. Those who understand your statutes. What would cause Ezra to write something like that? Perhaps he experienced it in Ezra 9.4. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. He literally experienced people turning to him because he loved the Lord and there were other people that didn't and they turned to him. Our next one comes from Psalm 119, 97 through 100. It's one that we love to read to our sons at the kibbutz. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies for they are ever with me. You've got a picture Ezra traveling with part of the remnant of Israel through enemy territory, knowing 
that what he holds in his hands has made him wiser than the enemies around him. 99. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. Guys, Ezra holding the law of God in his hand. He knows where his wisdom came from, and he points right back to the law. I have more understanding than the elders. Especially the ones that were weeping when they should have been rejoicing. Especially the ones that he was correcting when he got to Jerusalem. For I obey your precepts. Ezra wrote these things because he had carefully guarded and studied the word of God. While others around him were not diligent like he was. He devoted his entire life to the study, observance, and teaching of the word of God. So he could pen these words and know that they were true. Yeah. Wow. Alright, let's do verse 111 and 112. Your statutes are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. Joy. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. Yes! Church, how did we start Ezra chapter 7? With a genealogy of the priesthood that held on to the word so Ezra could bear it in his own hands. Man, if he knew what the generations before him provided for him, why might he say, my heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end? Ezra was a man who understood from his fathers what adhering to the word of God would produce for the generations coming after them. Psalm 119, verse 18. 118. You reject all who stray from your decrees. For their deceitfulness is in vain. Ponder what he was pondering. Ezra 10, 8. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exile. See, he's carrying out the commands of God with the authority that God granted him through the king. And he is writing about how God feels about it. He will expel them. Are y'all catching the one-for-one correlations here? Someone under 19, verse 136. Streams of tears flow from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Wonder where he could have written that from what place in his life maybe it was Ezra 10.1 while Ezra was praying and confessing weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God a large crowd of Israelites men, women and children gathered around him they too wept bitterly I want to tell you that Ezra was not mixed up in foreign marriages Ezra was not doing the things the other people were doing and yet tears were flowing from his eyes like streams because these are the princes of God and they are lessening the standards of God. But some rallied to him, wept over the sin, and then stood up from their weeping and did something about it. Psalm 119, this is our last one. Psalm 119, 145 through 149. I call with all my heart, answer me, O Lord. And I will obey your decrees. I call out to you, save me, and I will keep your statutes. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. Yes! My eyes 
stay open through the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promises. Hear my voice in accordance with your love. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your law. Sounds like beautiful poetry. Until you read in Ezra 8:22 through 23, when he's actually experiencing what he wrote about in Psalm 119. It says, I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from enemies on the road. Because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Come on, church. We started tonight with a prayer that Ezra's would rise up in this room. And that is a prayer knowing that Ezra's are going to rise up in this room. We went through chapter 7 realizing the genealogy that Ezra came from. Came from Aaron. Came from the Levites. He came from Phinehas. Came from Zadok. Came from all of these men. He correctly handled the word of truth and preached the whole truth even before kings. And now we've just given you one of the clearest roadmaps in Psalm 119 with his literal actions of him fulfilling what he wrote on how to become Ezra's. As the pastors come to close us out, I would encourage you guys to go back through Psalm 119 every day of this week. As long as it takes to become like Ezra's who are granted access by the King of Kings to go out into the entire world with a commission on our shoulders to preach the whole truth of God. Amen. 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 What do you say on a night like this? This is incredible, isn't it? Koki, uh, put up Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10. I want to remind you about what Justin just spoke about, about what these men have said repeatedly tonight, that there are Ezra's that are going to be raised up in this room. Amen. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study. He had built his life upon it. He so fell in love with the word of God. He devoted himself to the study. And, somebody say and. And. To the observance. Say he did it. He did it. He didn't just study it. He spent his life doing it and was able to teach his decrees and laws not only in Israel, but across the entirety of the kingdom of the known world at the time. I'm trying to put into practice what my brothers have shown me tonight. Let's do Psalm 119. We're going to do verses 1 through 3. To be able to be a man like Ezra, for us to raise up Ezra's in this house, you've got to know that blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord, who study it, who observe it, who teach it exactly as it is presented. Verse 2 says, blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. Yeah. (laughs) When a man like Ezra is saying that you seek him with all of your heart, doesn't that just take it away from how you feel? I feel like I'm really working hard for the Lord. (laughs) Yeah, when I compare... Seeking him with all of my heart compared to what Ezra was doing, it makes me want to rise to this challenge and yes. be a man like Ezra. Yes. They do no wrong, but they follow his ways. They are men and women who walk in the ways of God. 
What an incredible time for us tonight in a church that already loves the Lord and loves his word. Doesn't it just make your hunger rise within yes. you? Yes. Doesn't yes. it make you want to love him and know him and follow his word more? Those places in your life that you've just ignored, those things that you will refrain from saying because you're just too cowardly to say them? Wow. That kind of word this kind of God that sets us up is far too incredible, is far too divine for us to do anything less than become Ezra's. If you want to become an Ezra tonight, stand with us. As we pray, accept the challenge to increase your level of devotion to Ezra's devotion. Notice that he devoted himself to the study. One of the things that impacted me is that devotion required humility. He devoted himself to study what he did not yet know, but knew that he could understand. That devotion to study based on humility then led to a hunger as he began to put it into practice. He saw the effect of it. That devotion was immovable. It was firmly fixed. God's law is the only source of shalom that I have. God's law is the only source of truth that I have. I cannot and will not deviate it from it. And then from that position of experience, he now had weighty substance to distribute in teaching. And three times that I saw in, the, in chapter 7, the hand of God was upon him because he devoted himself to those three things. You want to see your family members really transformed like you've been transformed? Yes. Devote yourself like Ezra devoted himself. Yes. You begin to study and don't give up. Dig in deeper. Derash until you got something yes. that did you can put into practice. Yes. It'll not only benefit you, it'll benefit your heroes. Are you ready to rise to this challenge? Yes! Mighty God, we thank you for your word that lifts us up to the standard of who you are, transforms us into who you are, and puts your words in our mouths that declares your whole truth and brings about your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, as we listen to these words, may we commit to put them into practice right here and right now. May your law, may your commands be our delight, be our love, we are everything yes. so that your name is glorified among the nations. We love you, mighty God, and we thank you for this brotherhood, this body, and your word at work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.